You are listening to Stories from Real Life, a podcast by engaging storytellers for engaged story listeners. Here's your host, author and journalist, Melvin E. Edwards. And welcome to this edition of Stories from Real Life. I'm your host, Melvin E. Edwards, and I'm joined on today's storytelling journey by John Thorson. He humbly says he's not really Thor's son, but I'm here to tell you he probably is. And I don't mean the Chris Hemsworth version. I'm talking about the Norse god of thunder. You know how I know? Because Thor has a hammer, and I'm betting John also owns a hammer. Am I right, John? Do you own a hammer? Several. Okay, see, there you go. Proof. That's how proof works in this in our world today. Our guest today is Chicago native John Thorson, a locksmith and writer with a lot of interesting stories to tell. First, John, welcome to Stories from Real Life. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Can you tell me about your journey that led you from becoming to led you to becoming a locksmith? And then we'll get to some of the things that you've seen and experienced in that role. Well, in uh, 2014, I moved from Chicago down to Houston. Uh, I since moved back to Chicago. Um, when I got there, I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do when I got there. Um, I had a couple of other uh, stories in the fire, so to speak, as far as jobs go. Nothing was really working out. Um, and I, I saw this this ad online about a locksmith job, and I always thought it'd be interesting to learn a skill like that. So I applied for it, and while overall the the company was terrible, the one good thing I can say about it is that they taught me the skill of how to be a locksmith. So what kind of qualifications do you have to have to call yourself a locksmith? Well, for most companies, uh, they, you know, you have to, to get a license and all that and go through quite a bit of training. This one, they were pretty lax about all of that. Like I said, it was not the best company to, to work for. But they did a lot of the training themselves for... I think it was like a day or something like that. And and then they sent you out on your own. Wow. Wow. All right. So I'm old enough to remember when cars could be open with a straight coat hanger. (laughs) What would happen today if somebody (laughs) tried to unlock their car with something like that? So I did see plenty of people try to do that. And the weather stripping of the door, they would just completely destroy it. It was terrible. You you could always tell when someone tried to to do it themselves because the car looked just absolutely awful. (laughs) So what what would happen? What would you what would you think when you'd see that? I would think that, you know, those people obviously probably didn't have a whole lot of money or were in some sort of an emergency and they just thought that it'd be easy enough to do it on their own. Um, yeah, I, 
you would get very tired of seeing people destroy their own vehicle trying to do it themselves. Would would they actually do damage beyond just the weather stripping? Would they actually do some internal damage to the door? Not internal damage to the door exactly, but they would you would see people try to put screwdrivers inside uh where the the door wow. is. <laughs> And so they would bend the framing of it so bad that even if it got open, the door would never close properly again. Wow. Didn't even think about that part of it. So um, I'm sure a lot of your job as a locksmith was just opening doors for somebody who lost their keys or locked them in the cars. But what were some of the most unusual circumstances in which you recall for a, a car needing um, oh. to be unlocked? Oh, man. Um, I would see kids locked in cars, obviously. Kids locked in in wow. houses and rooms. Um, you would find quite often that that dogs or cats would be locked inside of cars. And obviously, in the Houston heat in the summer, that is extremely dangerous. Wow. So can can you tell us some some stories that you've seen? Some give us some little bit of details. So some of my favorite stories are I'm not sure how familiar you are with with the layout of Houston, but uh Yes, that's my that's my hometown. Okay. So on uh Westheimer Road, you know the Ross Sushi? Uh yes. I got Okay, so I got called out there one night for a car lockout, and a guy needed a new key made. And when I got out there, you know, I always like to talk to people, oh, how did this happen, things like that. Where where are the keys I, is another thing I would always ask people. And when I asked him that, he told me that the keys were on top of the restaurant. And this is like a, a two- or three-story re- uh, building. And so I'm just like, how did this happen, right? Apparently, he was out to eat with his girlfriend, although I'm pretty sure that they were broken up by the time that I got there. And uh, (laughs) while they were out to eat, he got a text on his phone, and his girlfriend wanted to see his phone, and he wouldn't show it to her. And so in the middle of the restaurant, she grabbed his keys, ran outside, threw them on top of the building, and took off... uh, in, in her car because they had gotten there separately. So I had to unlock this guy's car, make a key for it, and it's all because his ex-girlfriend at this point had taken his keys and thrown it on top of a two-story building. That's a pretty good arm. I'm, I'm right? wondering if the Astro Scouts know about this or the, even Texans. C.J. Stroud is a pretty good quarterback, but he needs a backup. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're we're recording this on Saturday, and hopefully, there's no injuries today by by Stroud. I know he missed a couple of weeks with a concussion. Yeah, we don't we don't need that. We we need him healthy, and and hopefully, again, this is by the time this airs, the game will have been about a week and a half ago. So hopefully, the Texans are still playing. But if not, we'll be getting ready for the 2024 season. But that woman sounds like she's got a good arm, and if we can get her angry enough to play in a game. She she might be a useful long term backup. What do you think? So like what, a what, third, do you think like a third or fourth round pick or something like that? 
Um, I, that might be a little bit too high. We might we might need to go like third day, like sixth, sixth or seventh round. But okay. But Brock Purdy was the last player picked in the in the seventh round, and he's starting an NFL quarterback. So you never know. <laughs> any 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 other interesting stories like that that you've seen? So that is by far one of the most insane. Um, another one of my favorites is it had to have been uh, on New Year's Eve, and I got called out to a house lockout. Uh, it was an apartment, really, but this girl had been out with her roommate who her it was a friend of hers who her her parents didn't really like or approve of and the friend was staying there kind of under the radar like no one really knew about it um and somehow the friend got really upset left wherever they had been at and went home and when the girl got back, she found that she had been locked out of her apartment. So I get there, and there's a certain type of, of lock called a quick set smart key lock. Uh, they have an extra set of pins in them that essentially relock it when you're trying to, uh, to to pick it or whatever so that you you can't. The only thing that you can do is drill it open. That's very common when it comes to apartments. So I I drill that. I get that open. Then she had also locked the interior deadbolt. So the only way to get that is by drilling through the front door itself. Well, the person in, inside the apartment heard me drilling it, obviously. And every time that I... You know, I, I drilled the door. Every time that I went to unlock the interior deadbolt, the person on the inside would lock it back up before I could get the door open. <laughs> and so we're out there. And, you know, Houston, not incredibly cold, not like Chicago, but still New Year's, pretty chilly. And we were out there for a couple of hours just playing this game back and forth of me unlocking the door, the roommate locking one of the other locks back up. And then same, you know, same thing. I would go towards the other lock, get that done. The roommate would lock the other. Yeah, it it was just a cat and mouse game for a couple of hours. <laughs> hours? Wow, you're oh, a yes. patient man. <laughs> yes. Finally, what happened was uh, the girl who was locked out, she called her dad and he came and picked her up and they just dealt with it the next day. Wow. That's crazy. All right, so what kind of precautions do you have to take to ensure that when somebody calls you to open up a house, for instance, or an apartment, that they actually are the residents of that, of that home? <laughs> that, so that is obviously something that is very concerning. You know, you don't want to open the door for some for someone whose house it isn't. So every person you would check their ID, make sure that that the name on the driver's license matched to the address that you were at. So that's that's all you'd have to do, just check the ID and that would pretty that much would I mean satisfy really, the requirements. Yeah, there's really no other way to to tell um, with cars, we were supposed to 
check the insurance card, make sure that like the name of the insurance card and the name of the person of, on the ID was the same. But since most people carry their uh, their insurance card in their car, you wouldn't be able to check it until you got it open, at which point it would have been too late anyway. Right. Wow. I mean, so I've never question, really thought about that. I have a yeah. question for you, sir. Have you ever been locked out of your car yes. or house? I don't think so. I, I don't think I have. Okay, very good. I may have at some point, but it was so long ago that I don't remember. And it would have been longer ago, long ago enough, and the car would have been old enough that I probably would have gotten it open with a coat hanger, <laughs> <laughs> without having to worry about damaging the weather stripping. But I, I honestly can't remember ever being locked out. Very so good. I don't recall ever ever needing the services of a locksmith. So I'm, I'm so I'm partially why I'm so fascinated by it. Okay. So have you ever have you ever had to lock, crack the code on a lock on a safe? I have actually. There's been a couple of times I've had to deal with safes. Um, the only way that we really dealt with safes of any kind was by using a grinder and just getting it open. Um, you would go towards the the back of it because that was the weakest part of a safe. So you would take a grinder or a Dremel, make a, a T on the back of it, and then use a crowbar to to pry it open. Wow. Hopefully we don't have any potential criminals listening to this episode and getting them ideas on how know. to crack I'm, open grandma, grandma's I'm, safe. <laughs> I'm going to give them all all of the, the secrets. <laughs> so... What what's the most difficult lock you've ever had to crack? Safes always took me a very long time. Um, my my grinding discs were not always the best, and my grinder itself would run out of battery very quickly. Uh, I remember one night I was at this woman's house. She had to get inside of an old gun safe because her husband had passed away and there was some mm. documents in there that she needed to to get. She had already had somebody out who had been there for like 30 minutes or 45 minutes before I got there and they had no idea what they were doing. And I got out there, told her that, I can get in, but I, you know, I need to, to essentially destroy the safe when I do it. Um, and the whole thing probably took me about five hours just because wow. my grinding discs were terrible and my battery kept dying. I had two batteries for my handheld grinder and I was switching off charging them because they were the rechargeable batteries. But at a certain point, one dies so quickly that the other one had had barely gotten any charge. So, yeah, I was out there for a good four or five hours. Oh, did you ever get it open? Oh, yeah. No, I, I finally got it, but it took a while. <laughs> well, there's a podcast I heard not long ago. I, I, I'll try to find it and send it to you if you haven't already heard it. It was, it was with a locksmith who was specialized in safes. And he was called out to Minneapolis to open the musical vault for Prince. Did you, you ever hear that episode? I have not. It was really fascinating. I didn't even think 
I would be interested in locksmithing or cracking safes until I heard this episode of a couple months ago. Oh, that it was, was so cool. He, he said the, the 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 lock and the vault were so intricate that if you like were off by a, a digit or whatever centimeter, then there was another lock behind it that would trigger, and you had to be precise on every one of these locks in order to get into the the vault. Oh, that is and so he crazy. Was, it took him a while. It took, it took him more than four or five hours. <laughs> and he was able to get into it. And then when he opened it, he said it was like a library of of music, like recordings that, that Prince has never released. Oh, really? So walls of music. It was it was crazy. That, now that is like a and his, and it was Prince's it was Prince's family that wanted wanted it open. Okay, and I, and I think they're releasing an album a, a year or something like that now. Oh, so that, really, that really is interesting. So cool. I'll see if I can find that and I'll send it to you. Yeah. So, what's a good safe place for somebody to store an extra spare key outside of their house? Where Where's a good safe place that they can do that? So, first of all, it's always a good idea to have an extra key outside of the house, or to make sure that a family member or friend, someone who you know will always answer has an extra key because that way you don't have to call a locksmith out, you know, God forbid something happens. But under a uh, rock or something, um, I know that there used to be this, this uh, thing that, that people did where you would have like a mason jar, put your, your key in that bury it in the ground and then put like a a plant over it to make it look like it was just part of the natural flora around the outside of the house. So that would be a good idea. Okay. But really, you know, as long as you have an extra, an an extra one that a friend or family has, that's really all that you, all that you need. Have you ever had anybody, just going back to a question I asked a couple minutes ago, have you ever had anybody ask you to open a car or a house that wasn't theirs? I did. I had someone ask me to open up a house. Um, he was. He claimed, at least, that he had been staying with a family member, a uncle or something like that. And as I was out there talking to the guy, the uncle showed up. And told me to leave that this person didn't have permission to be inside of their house. So wow. you did see that from time to time. That, yeah, I'm sure that would make your job much more stressful than than somebody might think it could be. Oh yeah, there were times I remember I got I, I was actually training someone one time. He was riding around with me for a couple of days and we got called out to one particular house lockout. And as soon as we got there, the police were all over the place. Apparently what had happened, this brother and sister were living together and the sister had gone out to take out the garbage. And while she was out there, the brother snuck in behind her and locked her out. And I guess there had been a whole bunch of drama drama between the two of them. And, yeah, once I got that open, 
me and the other guy were sitting there for probably about an hour and a half just listening to the police talk to the brother and sister before we could get paid and and leave. Uh, I was thinking, God, th- this poor guy's never going to come back again. Well, I, I'm sure there are a million stories like that out there, and hopefully people can resolve these issues and then not have to resort to any kind of a violent situation. They just need a locksmith to intervene. That's probably what they need. They don't even know it. Yep. Just get a locksmith. Yep. <laughs> All right. So how did a locksmith end up becoming a contributing writer to Eat, Pray, Vote? So there was a guy on Twitter back in 2017 named Jason Taylor. Uh, he used to, or I, I actually believe that he helped start Red State with Eric Erickson back in the day. And then they had a, a bit of a falling out. Um, and Jason started this online publication, Eat, Pray, Vote. And I, I don't remember exactly how I got made aware of him or the or the publication, but he reached out to me one day asking if I knew anybody who wanted to do any writing. And writing had always interested me. And so I, I was like, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd be very interested in it. And that lasted for maybe two months. Uh, I, I had fantastic timing um, because that was right around the time when Hurricane Harvey happened. And Jason lived in, uh, what was it, like Humble or Atascacita, you know, way up there okay. in the north. So just, just north of Houston, of right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they got so much rain from it that he had like six feet of water in his house, had to spend a week living on the second story. And after that, he just, he kind of had a bit of a breakdown. Um, and without him, you know, the entire thing just kind of fell apart. The other people there tried to keep it going. We tried doing it under a different name. Like we got rid of the E-Pray vote. We tried to do it under writer of, of words was what they were going for, for, for the next title of the publication. But yeah, the whole thing just kind of fell apart after, after Jason left. Well, what did you, what did you write about? Uh, it was mainly kind of a, political thing um not not always you know there was some religious aspects to it but it was mostly politics you know i I guess having come from red state i guess that kind of made made sense that that's what he was going for but yeah uh, like i said the whole thing really kind of fell apart very quickly um not to you know give away too many of the secrets of what happened, but there was a time when when some of the other admin had to actually lock him out of the site because he had come on to like the Slack channel and and things like that and really tried to sabotage everything. So they had to completely restrict all of his yeah yeah they had to restrict all of his privileges and completely lock him out. Wow. And then he needed a locksmith to lock him, get himself back in, probably. Well, <laughs> that would have been more, you know, more of an IT issue. So that's not something I would have been very good at. But. Yeah. 
Wow, that's that's interesting. So tell me about the book you started writing when you were in your early 20s. So this never really went went anywhere. Um, but in college, I had studied studied history. I was a was and still I'm a, a big fan of history. And, you know, one thing I thought nobody really knew that much about was Middle Eastern history and Islam. And so I took the copious amounts of notes that I had had taken during my college days, um, and I wrote them down into a book. And the church that I was going to at the time, one of the uh, the pastors, the assistant pastor, knew someone who was a publisher and was going going to turn it into a book. Um. I mean, the pastor would meet once a week or twice a week or something like that. And we were proofreading it and editing it and going through it. And we got maybe about halfway through, maybe a little bit more than that, when he and his family moved away. And once again, the whole thing just kind of fell apart after that. It it never went anywhere, sadly. Wow. Your timing really has been off just, just a oh, little bit. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> so how many pay, how many words did you write for that manuscript oh god i honestly couldn't even tell you it it, it would have been a pretty comprehensive like 250 300 page book on the entire history of of the middle east and the role that Islam played, how it started, everything up until the modern day. Okay. Well, I, I would recommend, highly recommend that you don't give up that dream. I, I started writing a book when I was in my 20s, and I sort of gave up on the idea. And I didn't actually finish my first book and get it published until I was in my 50s. So it's never too late. I was, just, I, I was just going to say it's never too late. That goes for anybody. Sorry, didn't you start your journey to... wanting to be a sport? Yes, absolutely. Don't give up on your dreams, unless it's playing center field for the Astros, like my dream once was. <laughs> I'm kind of old for that now. But other than that, non-physical related stuff, non-athletic related stuff, you could probably do that no matter how old you are. All right. So, didn't you start your journey wanting to be a sports broadcaster? I did. I did. Um... This was back in 2008, 2009. Again, perfect timing on my part, you know, because you had the (laughs) the housing crisis and all that then. Um, In September 2008, I went to the, well, then it was the Illinois Center for Broadcasting. Um, Now it's under a different name. I, I don't quite know what. I think it's like Illinois Media college or something like that but it was the Illinois Center for for broadcasting then um and yeah I went there with hopes of you know becoming a a sports broadcaster you wanted to play center field for the Astros I wanted to be an announcer um and so I went there and after a couple months I realized that first of all I have a face for radio and a voice for TV. That was the first thing that I realized. Um, <laughs> the second thing that I realized is that 
I was very interested in news and current events. And so I kind of kind of transitioned from wanting to go into sports to wanting to just become a news broadcaster. Um, and it was a very specialized course, only nine, ten months or something like that. And got out in, again, 2009, middle of the housing crisis, middle of the Great Recession, and nobody is hiring. Um, I think that out of all of the people in the the course, which was maybe like 30, I think only one or two actually wound up doing anything with with what they learned. Radio is a very difficult medium to get into, especially then because podcasting really wasn't a, a thing. Um, and it's just even more difficult when times are as bad as they were then. You know, you send out hundreds of demos and you're lucky if one or two people even get back to you saying, hey, we listened to it, but we don't like it. No, thank you. Most people, you send something out to them, you never hear back. Well, that, I'm sure that was discouraging. So how did you end up on the NBC Nightly News in 2020? I'm sure that wasn't <laughs> anything you planned for. It, it was not. So I've, Twitter has been very good to me. Um, you know, obviously, I got the writing thing at, at uh, ePrevote doing that. Uh this because of you through through Twitter and the NBC Nightly News. So in 2020, when the pandemic was was going on, I was in some sort of a discussion about the uh, extended unemployment benefits that that Congress had passed, and it was right around the time when there was a debate whether they would continue to uh, to do those. And I don't remember exactly what I said, but later that day, I got a, a message from someone from NBC, and they were saying that they were putting a package together of different people um, wanting to get their thoughts on, on the uh, extended unemployment and how would it help them and if I wanted to be part of it. So, of course, you know, I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, that's fantastic. So I had a Zoom call a day or two later with someone from NBC and, you know, they interview you for 30 minutes or so and then – their people do their thing, and they end up getting it down to 45 seconds because of editing and all that. And yeah, uh, it aired sometime in, I want to say in early July, late June of 2020. <clears throat> so you were a national TV star at that point then for yes. 45 seconds of fame. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, I <clears throat> so was it fake? Was it fake news or was it real? And I'm I'm asking that for a, a friend. <laughs> um, well, if you don't like it, isn't it all fake? Yes, that's how it works today. <laughs> <laughs> it's either for you or it's not real. <laughs> all right, so I got a random, really random question here. So what's your favorite holiday? My favorite holiday, growing up. It was always the 4th of July. 
and I, I, you know, this isn't for any like patriotic reason or anything like that. I, I wish I could say that it was, um, but just so many great memories from the 4th of July from, you know, uh, going to my grandparents' house, being in, in the pool, the cookouts that there were, uh, the parade at the beginning of the day. Yeah. So that, that would have to be my favorite one. Wow. I would, I was expecting you to say Christmas, like most people say it, but <laughs> 4th of July is a pretty cool day too. And it's in the middle of summer. It's not cold. So when you're being up in Chicago, you actually get to go outside and do stuff. I think that played a big part of it. And right, so w- and since it's not Houston, the humidity just wasn't completely devastatingly terrible. <laughs> yeah, people who've never been to Houston, especially people who live on the sort of mid-Atlantic East Coast, think that Houston or think all of Texas is dry. I, I found that really weird and interesting. I, I grew up in Houston, moved to Maryland when I was in my mid-30s. And I don't know how many people said, well, Texas might be hot, but at least it's drier than here. They can, yeah, go to Houston and come back an hour later and and tell me if you still believe that. It's it's as pos- hot and, and humid as it can possibly be. It's like Miami or South Louisiana. Any, any place along the Gulf Coast is really, really humid. Right. So, so, all right, different different type of question. All right, go go ahead. No, go ahead. So, funny story. When I moved to Houston, it was in in 2014. I moved in February, right? And Chicago had just gone through the polar vortex. So, you know, we're talking negative 10, negative 20 degree temperatures with the wind chill. And I get down to Houston, and it's in like the the 30s or 40s. And everyone there is all bundled up. I mean, you know, if it drops below 60 in Houston, people break out the winter jackets. (laughs) And I'm walking around with like a short sleeve shirt and a light jacket on just because the the 50 degree difference from what I had come from was so nice. People were looking at me like I was nuts. (laughs) They just they didn't know and you didn't know what you were about to experience. (laughs) All right, so what's your favorite sports teams? Sports teams. So being from Chicago, uh, this surprises a lot of people because there aren't many of us. I am a White Sox fan. Uh, It's difficult to say right now because they're terrible and the organization is a bit of a joke. But White Sox fan, and I do apologize for 2005. I, I had almost gotten over that, but thanks for picking at that scab. No problem. No problem. Uh, I was actually fortunate enough to be at game one of that World Series between the uh, the White Sox and the Astros. So that, that was really neat. Yeah, even though uh, that series was over really fast, <laughs> it was a really close series. It could have gone either direction. I, I figured out once that – one strategic hit from the Astros in each one of those games could have flipped all four of the games. Oh yeah. So like they had a like one time they had the base bases loaded and they couldn't score. Yep. And they lost the game by one run. Or, or or they lost one game one to nothing. It it was just for a sweep, it was incredibly close. Yeah. 
So outside, All right, of, so, uh, outside of the White Sox, but, I always used to joke with people in Houston that my two favorite teams were the White Sox and whoever was facing the Cubs that day. Um, there is this rivalry that really White Sox fans have with Cubs fans. It, it really doesn't go the, the other way um, where there is – this disdain for the Cubs. And the only way that I can describe it to anybody in Houston is imagine the Texans and the Cowboys being in the same city. The Texans have historically been better, but the Cowboys get all of the publicity. That's kind of what it's like being a White Sox fan in Chicago feel like the little brother probably very much do you have a favorite football team <laughs> being a chicago and this is probably terrible but i have always very much appreciated the green bay packers oh no you're gonna get kicked out they're gonna find your address and then and they're gonna change the locks on your door <laughs> as a chicago and that is about as sacrilegious as you can get but i i have honestly never been much of a chicago bears fan yeah wow. so I, how'd I, you end up rooting for green bay of course green bay wisconsin's right next door so that that sort of makes some sense I mean, you, you see them play at least twice a year when they face the Bears, so that that helps. <clears throat> um, but I think it's just the consistency that they've had. You know, they've gone from say, say what you will about whether you agree with some of their stances or not, but they've gone from Favre to Rodgers and now to Love that's consistency that most teams would would absolutely do anything for i mean that's absolutely. <laughs> that's amazing really what it comes down to for me is in sports radio there's this thing called hometown stupid where you think that your team is better than it actually is right you think that the players on your team are better than they are. You think that the team is better than they are. And I think that's what really got me to not like the Bears. You see a lot of that. Hmm. And me being somewhat of a contrarian, I I kind of just have to go against what everyone around me is going for. <laughs> I understand that dynamic, too. <laughs> All right. So our guest today has been John Thorson. Uh, John, thanks so much for joining me today. I've enjoyed this conversation. Oh, thank you for having me. That's it for today's episode of Stories from Real Life. Join us again next time for another great storytelling journey. Until then, don't forget to shine some light wherever you go. That was another edition of Stories from Real Life with your host, Melvin E. Edwards. Join us again next time for more stories about more things 
than you can imagine. Some of those true stories may even be about real life. See you next time.